This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to another episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. I'm your host, Christian Peterson. Thanks for joining us today. I just had the great pleasure of speaking with Rachel Ronaldo about her wonderful new book, Mobilizing Piety, Islam and Feminism in Indonesia, which was published with Oxford University Press in 2013. Are Islam and feminism inherently at odds? Is there a contradiction between piety and gender justice? This is the guiding theme for Rachel Ronaldo's new book, Mobilizing Piety. After more than 18 months of fieldwork in the contemporary nation with the highest Muslim population, Indonesia, she found that global discourses on Islam and feminism were constantly in dialogue in this local context. This book is an ethnography of women activists in Jakarta during a time of democratization, popular religious resurgence, and post-9-11 anxieties and suspicions. Ronaldo examined a feminist NGO, Muslim women's organizations, and a Muslim political party to see how piety and politics intersected. In our conversation, we discuss public aspects of piety, field theory, agency, polygamy, pornography, bodily politics, religion as cultural schema, and gender, among many, many other things. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies. Welcome. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Rachel Ronaldo about her great new book, Mobilizing Piety, Islam and Feminism in Indonesia. Uh, how are you today? Great, and thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thanks for making the time. Um, I really enjoyed reading your book. It's a fascinating read, and um, I really love when people are working on kind of the, con- the contemporary situation, and you're giving us a really interesting picture on what's going on in Indonesia today among uh women activists. So I'm excited to talk to you about it. Before we get into the book, though, um, we always begin these conversations with a little bit about you. So I was hoping you could tell tell us a little bit about um, how you got interested in uh, studying Muslims, um, if there was perhaps people that have been influential in, in how you approach it, uh, you know, especially in Islamic studies. Uh, many people are using texts, right? And you're doing ethnography. So uh, perhaps there's somebody that was influential in that decision. Um, just a little bit about how you how you got into this topic. Sure. Um, well, first of all, my interest in Indonesia started long before I went to grad school. Um, and I was a high school exchange student with the AFS program uh, the year after I graduated from high school. 
And so I was sent to live with a Muslim family in a medium-sized city in eastern Java. And, you know, certainly at the time I wasn't, um, you know, had no idea that I would go into academia. It was just an, an interesting experience, but it was certainly one that, um, you know, coming at the age of, of 18, I think, had a profound effect on me, um, sort of intellectually and, and personally and so on, um, on a lot of different levels. And I think certainly the country of Indonesia really captivated me at the time, and I was very intrigued by its history and its culture. Um, and the experience of living with a Muslim family was also certainly very new at the time, um, 1989, 1990, most Americans really knew very little about Indonesia, very little about Islam or Muslims. Um, so that was certainly an interesting experience. Sort of then, I think I, I sort of put that aside once I, I came back and, and went to college and sort of resumed my normal American life. Uh, but then a few years later, when I started thinking about graduate school in the 1990s and when I started a graduate program in sociology and started thinking about what I would want to study for a dissertation, um, I kept coming back to Indonesia and thinking, wouldn't it be amazing to go back to Indonesia? And I still remember some of the language and I you know, have the host family that I lived with. I could get back in touch with them. And it was sort of fortuitous that just as I was really getting into the grad school experience and finishing up my master's thesis, which I, I had done in Chicago, um, that a whole lot of exciting events began to occur in Indonesia. And, and this was uh, the democracy movement of 1997, 1998, as well as the, the Asian economic crisis. Um, and suddenly, for the first time in years, Indonesia was in the headlines and there were demonstrations and riots and it was this exciting moment. And I had been, I was very interested as a sociologist in social movements, and social change, and I was becoming interested in gender as well. Um, and sort of transformations in gender norms and gender relations. And what I saw in happening in Indonesia anyway, I thought was very striking to me because I saw there was a large presence of women in those protests. So that was really the first um, thing that got me thinking about doing a project on Indonesia. Um, but it started out, I think, very different from what it eventually became. Um, it really started out in many ways with this idea of studying women in either the democracy movement or in the sort of period, the kind of tumultuous period following democratization, um, and, and what were women activists doing? And what happened is that, of course, it takes a while to get these kinds of projects going. And by the time I started writing um, my proposals for funding for fieldwork, it was just when 9-11 happened. And it struck me at that point, I hadn't really been interested in religion. Obviously, I knew that, that Indonesia was you know, mostly Muslim and I knew a little bit about Islam from living there, but it certainly wasn't much of a focus of the project. Um, and then all of a sudden with everything going on globally, I, it sort of hit me like, wow, I have this opportunity to go to the world's largest Muslim country after 9-11 
and see what's going on with women's activism. Um, and so from that point, then Islam and the idea that I'd be studying Muslims started to become a, a much larger feature of the project. Um, but to be honest, I think I probably come at this from a, a very different perspective than, than most other people who are doing Islamic studies and that I had no training in, in studying religion, much less Islam. Um, so when I got there and had the idea of studying both secular and Muslim women's groups, I, I had a lot of learning to do. Um, and, you know, both sort of background reading and then just talking to people. And, and because there was so much that I, I didn't know about what it meant to study Muslims and, and sort of a lot of basic things about the religion um, weren't things that I knew about. I wasn't uh, well-read in the sociology of religion at that point, um, so I certainly had to do a lot of reading on my own to, to kind of catch up. Um, so that was sort of the inception of the project, and as I went along in my field work, and, and of course projects often change as you do the actual field work, um, and I was doing ethnographic work, which I had wanted to do since the beginning of my graduate program, um, the University of Chicago sociology department was kind of had this interesting history of kind of having pioneered urban ethnography in the early days of sociology. And that tradition had been lost a little bit. But at the time that I was in graduate school, a number of the students and a few of the faculty members were kind of trying to revive that tradition. And so that was something I was very interested in. And so I sort of brought that with me to Indonesia. And in the process of doing ethnographic work, I found myself to be, um, I think, especially fascinated by what some of the Muslim women's groups in Indonesia were doing. I felt that in certain ways, they were actually maybe pushing the envelope on women's rights, perhaps even more than some of the more secular women's groups, we could say. Um, and so I started, you know, really talking to them about what they were doing and how they understood religion. And, and that um, in, interpretation seemed to be such a huge focus for them and how one interprets and understands the texts. Um, and so I became very interested in that aspect of their work and, and how that um, related to their activism. So, so that's kind of how I got interested in the project and, and how it started to take on uh, the shape it, it eventually took. Sure, sure. Now, um, much of the research was done in fieldwork, and you spend over 18 months there uh, over a few different years, uh, primarily in 2002 and 2003. Um, and... So this has been a very long project, and um, I'm wondering if you could kind of reflect upon a little bit what what steps or how you had to rethink the dissertation in kind of moving it towards a book. Was there was there a lot you had to do, or many many listeners are probably also writing books, so I think that that uh, your reflection on that might be helpful. So. Sure, it definitely, I think, changed quite a bit. I mean, first of all, I never, I hadn't really envisioned doing um, what you could say is actually kind of a longitudinal project, right? Because I did the bulk of the field work in 2002, 2003, but came back for several months in 2005, and again in 2008. So I got these sort of snapshots of, of how things were changing. 
Um, and I think actually one of the biggest challenges with this kind of work with ethnographic or, or even with interview studies about very kind of current topics is um, how quickly things can change. And so there's this constant need to sort of keep up with what's going on um, and, and make sure that you're not missing some, some important changes because, of course, it takes a long time to do the writing. Um, and so that was, I think, a, a big challenge that I found because the sort of political events kept happening in Indonesia and, and things kept changing and, you know, different people were in power. There were different sort of issues that became important or became less important over time. And so I tried to, part of the reason I kept going back was to try to capture some of those changes over time. Um, I think for me, what changed most, though, in, in between the dissertation and the book, is I finished the dissertation in, in 2007, and then the book just came out in, in, in this past fall, so, so 2013. Um, for me, it was more less about sort of the empirical content and more about what it was that I wanted to say and, and what I wanted um, readers to understand about the situation there. Um, and so I think a prominent issue in the book is, is the issue of agency and, and what is the nature of the agency of these women activists. Um, and that was actually, I think, less of a issue in the dissertation itself. I think in the dissertation, I was sort of preoccupied with some somewhat different issues about Islam in the public sphere um, and how women activists sort of used Islam in the public sphere to their advantage. Um, and I guess I think partly I was reacting to trends in the literature and, and the issue of agency became more prominent again, um, right around the time I was finishing the dissertation. And so I, I ended up speaking to that much more in the book. And I think that's kind of a natural process with, with a project that evolves over such a long period of time is that you might still have the same kind of data and empirical material that you're dealing with, but, but some of your kind of broader concerns shift. Hmm. Um, one of the, the kind of theoretical concepts that you, you, you discuss explicitly in the introduction and in a couple of places elsewhere is this idea of what religion is and how we should approach it. And I think not only people in Islamic studies but in religious studies as well will really benefit from this. Um, could you talk a little bit about how you think about religion? You call it a cultural schema. And um, perhaps how, how should we understand religion? How should we analyze its effects? You kind of couch us in a discussion of culture, st structure, and agency. So could you kind of tell us a little bit about this? Yeah, I think um, my perspective is kind of a, a one that is coming out of um, the cultural sociology tradition. And that I was a, a cultural sociologist before I came, became interested in religion. And I think I bring some of the perspectives from that literature to studying religion. Um, and in the cultural sociology perspective, I think one of the ideas that's become quite prominent is, is uh, look at using people uh, like Bourdieu, um, like the work of Sewell and so on, to think about the relationship between culture and structure and to think of culture as sort of being embedded in structure and something that does shape people's lives, but also something that 
people are able to use in complicated ways, sometimes even unexpected ways. So it doesn't necessarily, just because it's part of the larger social structure, doesn't mean that it has to be um, incredibly deterministic. And I think this is sort of a reaction to kind of older views that were prominent in sociology in, in, in previous decades that did see a very sort of strong determining role for social structure. Um, and, and here, I think there's a little bit of a pushback to say, yes, that, you know, there, there are very powerful things that constrain people's lives and place them on certain trajectories. And yet we know that things change, right? <laughs> and, and people do things you don't expect them to do. Um, and we see that people, you know, do things with culture differently in different places, for example. And so I think I started thinking about religion then as a form of culture. Um, and I think I, I still go back and forth sometimes about, is it a form of culture that's different from other forms of culture? Or is there something special about religion in particular? Obviously, religion um, speaks to people's, um, you know, moral values and ethics in, in a particular way. Um, and not all forms of culture do that. Um, but certainly there are what we could say are non-religious cultural ideologies that do that as well. So I think that's an issue that I, I perhaps haven't decided yet. And there's a debate in sociology right now, actually, among sociologists of religion um, about this very issue. Is, is religion a, a special type of culture or is it, can we say that religion is just like any other cultural ideology? Um, so for now, I'm, <laughs> I'm not quite taking a position on that. Um, but seeing religion as a cultural a schema, something that pre-exists people, but that is create was created pe by people, obviously, and that people can use and engage with in different ways. Yeah, I think it's a it's a helpful conversation you have in the book. So, um, also here you're you're dealing with two kind of big ideas, right? You're dealing with Islam, you're dealing with feminism. And um, in the first chapter, you, you set out kind of a uh, helpful way of thinking about this, uh, kind of how the intersection of gender politics and Islamic politics. And you're using field theory to kind of help place uh, various uh, sections of agency. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how these uh, two fields are, are separate and where they come together and how you're, how you're thinking about agency in relation to these? Yeah, sure. This idea of fields has been one that I think is very useful for uh, for my analysis, anyway. And and thinking of um, of Islamic politics and gender politics as these fields of action, which involve various actors um, kind of negotiating and engaging with each other um, around these ideas, um, and. It's been argued then that you have to think of, you know, certain forms of agency arising within these fields um, and forms of agency that relate to the norms and values of a particular field so that the field of Islamic politics might produce particular forms of agency. The field of gender politics might produce particular forms of agency. 
Um, and my argument is that, you know, after um, democratization in Indonesia after 1998, when the public sphere kind of opened up, you saw the development of and the increased dynamism of these these fields, as well as many other fields, you know, we could probably even talk about a field of, of Christian politics, perhaps, or, or other kinds of things. Um, but Islamic politics and gender politics were the most relevant ones for the, the organizations that I was studying. Um, and I argue that what happened as a result of the, the democracy movement and the opening of the public sphere was that these fields of Islamic politics and gender politics really began to intersect more and more and to sort of overlap each other. And so that meant that actors in these different fields um, had more of a, a relationship with each other, either mutual influence or sort of, um, you know, seeing each other as rivals, and it could be as well. Um, so that, I think, is a way that I started to kind of understand what was going on in the public sphere in Indonesia and how um, these organizations were relating to each other and why we started to see some of these interesting kind of hybrids or mixtures, if you will, of Islam and feminist politics. Um, now, uh, to, to set the stage in the book, you, you go through and kind of give us a, a, about a century worth of history, which I won't ask you to repeat here. Yeah. Um, but perhaps you could kind of just um, set the stage a little bit. You, you've alluded to some of this. Um, but uh, what, what are some of the kind of important things we need to know about um, Islam and women activism in Indonesia to understand these, these kind of case studies that you take us through? Sure. Yeah. No. And the, the historical aspects are, are really important to me. And I, I it's something that I wish um, ethnographers did more of. I think some ethnographers do a, a great job with kind of presenting the historical context of their work, but but others not not as much. And that was very important to me because I I, I really think that the historical context shapes the present context. And so. Um, you know, it, it, you can't it, to simply present, you know, what's going on now without that, I think is really missing something. Um, so what I think is particularly important about Indonesia, um, well, I think, first of all, that um, we have uh, certainly there's been a history of women's mobilization in the country. Um, since essentially since the 1920s, when it arose as, as part of the nationalist movement and the movement against um, the Dutch colonial government, um, and, and women became involved in that movement. Um, and parallel to that, you had also a growing um, Islamic movement, which also involved women. Um, so I think you can go back a long way and, and sort of trace the roots of, of women's activism. And, and that's quite important, I think, that I, I think certainly contemporary women's activism, although very different from those earlier forms of activism, still kind of builds on that history and that precedent is there and, and people in the country tend to be aware of that. Um, and so to, to have, you know, the idea of a woman activist, then it's not such a, a strange idea in Indonesia, um, because people that know anything about the country's history, you know, recognize that as, as a feature that has been there. 
Um, but certainly the relationship between Islam and women's activism has gone through different um, periods. And um, there are periods where um, there's been sort of a friendly relationship between the women's rights movement and Islam in periods where there wasn't, there was even sort of perhaps an antagonistic relationship between them. The state has been an important factor in how the state dealt with both Islam and with women. Um, and that of course changed over time. Um, and so the period that is perhaps most relevant is, is the more recent history of post-1965, when the country was ruled by an authoritarian uh, military dictatorship um, led by Suharto. Um, and in the early, certainly the, the first part of that period, the state had a, the relationship toward Islam was a fairly careful one in that the state was working very hard to kind of manage religion and to, to kind of keep, make sure that religion would not be a force that could get out of hand. Um, and then when it came to women, the state um, was sort of operating on, on two different levels. On the one hand, there was this uh, attempt to also control women's activism um, and prevent that from becoming um, some type of independent activism. Um, and uh, the state pushed us what people have called housewifeization of uh, depicting the ideal woman as, as a housewife and kind of helper to her husband, um, somebody who stayed in the domestic sphere and didn't get involved in politics. Um, that was at the same time as also kind of trying to develop Indonesia's export sector. Um, and the factories began to employ large numbers of women, um, as we saw throughout um, the developing world in the, the 1970s and 1980s. Um, and women were, were seen as a, a great source of inexpensive and, and obedient labor. Um, so we had some sort of contradictory things going on. And I think that helps then shape the present context um, where, you know, certainly some women have embraced that domestic role that the, the government worked hard to promote for many years. Um, you also have many women who in various ways have rebelled against that kind of role. You have a perception that the state was secular um, and that Islamic groups were marginalized. Um, and so there's certainly been a lot of pushback against that um, and certainly some attempts to Islamize uh, the state and, and the nation. Um, so those are some of the, I think, important historical moments. Then that regime, the Suharto regime, falls in 1998. And so my study really starts after that period and, and sort of looks at, okay, well, what happened after that? And, and hopefully it's sort of a snapshot in, in certain ways of, of both the earlier part of that era of the early 2000s, um, when things were very much still in flux and up for grabs, it wasn't certain that the country would remain democratic. It wasn't certain that it looked like some regions might even split off. There was there was a lot of turmoil toward the later 
part of that decade when things became much more settled and, and stable and, and sort of electoral democracy became more of a, a given. So um, you have three, uh, well, I guess four groups, but th- three chapters that you have give us kind of case studies here. And the first one you talk, walk us through is uh, the groups Fatiat and Rahima. Can you can you tell us what what kind of people join these organizations? What kind of activities are they up to? Um, and and how, how did you find your your time there? Sure, um, Rahima was one of the first organizations that I encountered when I I first arrived and um, was looking for groups to study and. I didn't have very many contacts, but somebody told me, oh, you know, that there's this interesting new NGO that's dealing with women's rights in Islam, and, and you should go talk to them. So, so they were one of the first groups I met. They are a small NGO, um, you know, usually less than a dozen people at any one time in their Jakarta headquarters, um, and there are, I think. A group that I found particularly fascinating um, because the interpretive element is so important for them, and, and that's really the bulk of what they do. Um, in that they um, they publish a magazine and then they um, work very closely with traditional Muslim boarding schools to try to promote um, a gender egalitarian interpretation of Islam. And so they have people on their staff then who are actually trained Islamic scholars who help to produce and, and these sort of alternative or revisionist interpretations of texts. And then they work to sort of disseminate these ideas as well as to train teachers and to train young and upcoming scholars. One of their interesting recent programs has been to try to train um, more women to be Islamic scholars in their own right, and they, they've had some success with that program. So the people in Rahima tend to be, you know, um, very highly educated, and, and some of them have, you know, very strong background in, in Islamic studies. Um, others are coming out of sort of more kind of activist backgrounds, um, uh, usually from the kind of what you could say is sort of the liberal progressive activist milieu in Jakarta. And, and Rahima has certainly become a, a stalwart uh, of that milieu um, and, you know, very often collaborates with other groups um, to do their, their various programs. Um, so that so that was them. And, and that, I think, really is where, you know, I first encountered this this issue of, of interpretation. And, and that was something very new to me at the time, you know, I came in thinking, oh, but, you know, in Islam, you have to wear a veil, or you have to do this, or you have to do that. Um, And people at Rahima were sort of telling me things that that were completely new (laughs) to my understanding and saying, well, no, actually, you could look at it this way, or you could look at it that way. Um, And so that was very, very interesting to me. Fatayat um, ends up, I think, having very similar politics, but as an organization is very different um, in that they are the women's division, the main women's division of one of the country's largest Muslim organizations. Um, So Indonesia has these massive Muslim organizations. Um, One is Muhammadiyah and the other is Nadlatul Ulama. Both of them very longstanding, have played important roles in the country's politics over time. 
Um, and the way that they, these, both these large organizations tend to, um, they both run schools, they have various institutes, and they have divisions for different types of people. So they'll have the women's division, uh, the older women's division, the youth division, and, and things like that. Um, so Fatayat is for women 25 to 45, and it's part of this, the Nadlatul Ulama. So most of the women in um, Fatayat come from families with some kind of tie or, or affiliation with Nadlatul Ulama. Um, and, and that certainly has been very important for them because Nadlatul Ulama has a particular approach to interpretation. Um, and it's what is often referred to as the traditionalist approach, uh, where they sort of recognize multiple texts as being authoritative. Um, and they have this kind of what I found to be a sort of self-consciously interpretive approach to religion, um, where, you know, the text is, is not necessarily taken at face value, that one has to look at the body of jurisprudential scholarship. One has to look at what these various historical ulamas have said about the text to understand them, and, and that there can be this kind of complicated way of, of sort of figuring out what, what things mean. Um, so Fatayat is very strongly influenced by that tradition, as is Rahima, actually. The people in Rahima are also affiliated, um, not formally, but loosely, with, with Nanlatul Ulama. Um, and so that's why I actually grouped these organizations together in one chapter, even though one is a small NGO and one is this large organization, um, but because of this similar outlook on Islam. Um, and then advocating, and essentially what both of them are saying is that gender equality is Islamic. And that, you know, if you read the texts in, you know, the way that we read them, that they, that certainly gender equality is possible, that we could even think of, you know, Muhammad as a reformer who wanted to, you know, sort of promote equality of, among all people, and, and that includes men and women. And so these are the kinds of arguments that they're making. That's great. And um, in this discussion, uh, in kind of exploring interpretive strategies, uh, you, you look at this idea of polygamy. Um, could you tell us kind of how these debates unfolded in relation to polygamy? Yeah, I mean, polygamy has been a very controversial issue in Indonesia in recent years, um, basically since democratization. Prior to that, it was sort of a, a taboo issue and, and wasn't discussed very much. Um, and it's not practiced all that much in Indonesia, which is kind of a funny aspect of this issue. Um, so it's sort of more of a symbolic controversy than, than anything else. Um, but people do take very different views on it. Um, so there was a move starting in the early 2000s by some certain Muslim conservatives to try to promote polygamy as an authentically Muslim way of life, perhaps as a solution to kind of a perceived moral crisis. Um, it was argued that polygamy could help prevent adultery and so on. Um, so a lot of feminists were, were certainly dismayed um, by these arguments. 
Um, and among the kind of liberal and progressive Muslims, and, and particularly those in, in Rahima, but also in Fatayat as well, people were looking for different ways of, of understanding the verses about polygamy. And so they came up um, with some very different interpretations of that verse and about polygamy. Um, and so you see a couple different arguments being made that, that emerged out of these organizations. Um, and these arguments I found were very strongly influenced by these sort of globally known uh, Muslim progressive intellectuals, um, people like Fatima Murnisi, um, Nawal al-Sadawi, um, Ali Asghar Janir, people like this, whose writings um, had been circulating in Indonesia. Um, and then there were also Indonesians who, who were contributing their, their interpretations too. Um, so one of the ways that, that people came to under some people came to understand these verses is they said, well, you have to understand the historical context. Um, and that, yes, it does say that polygamy is permissible up to four women, but this is coming out of a period of great strife and turmoil in the Arab Peninsula. It really wasn't safe for a woman to be on her own. Um, and so that kind of argument was being made that this was very particular to the context of the Arab Peninsula at the time. Um, related to that, some people argued that actually this was a special right just for the Prophet Muhammad. Uh, and this wasn't meant to apply to all people, that this was sort of an emergency situation and, and he was special and he was allowed to do this. Um, then there are other arguments which um, are also probably familiar to, to, to many people. Um, that if you read the text, it sets up this um, very difficult criteria to fulfill, that it says, yes, you can marry up to four women, but you must treat them all equally. And what does it mean to treat somebody, people equally? Well, equally in terms of not only finances, but also emotions. Um, and is it really possible to treat you know, two women equally emotionally? Um, in this day and age, we have very high expectations for our intimate relationships. And so that's simply not possible. That's, so that's another argument that's, that's been made a little bit different than the historical argument. Um, and so both groups, but particularly Rahima, have been you know, trying to promote these alternative interpretations um, through, you know, they'll do things like publishing op-eds in newspapers. They certainly, they publish these kinds of things in their own journal. Um, and then they teach people these interpretations in the, the trainings that they do for Islamic teachers and so on. Great. The, uh, the, the following chapter is on the Prosperous Justice Party, uh, which is shorthand PKS. And this group takes kind of a different perspective or uh, kind of, different goals. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what this group's all about and what you were finding while, uh, during your time there? Sure. Well, in contrast to, um, you know, a group like Fatayat, which is very longstanding, um, the Prosperous Justice Party 
arose out of the democratization period um, as a new Muslim political party. Um, and it quickly became kind of probably the best known Muslim political party in Indonesia. And it's, it's still around. Um, and it's had some, certainly some electoral success. Um, but it represented a very different perspective on Islam. Um, so while the groups like Fatayat and, and Rahima, and there were a number of others like them, had this very, you know, self-conscious uh, focus on interpretation, um, the people in the Prosperous Justice Party were coming out of a very different place. They had been involved in what was known as the Tarbiya movement in Indonesia, which um, was started by a generation of students returning from study in the Middle East in the 1980s and 1990s, um, who were very influenced by the Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood, um, and who brought back um, what some people would call a more sort of, some people would call it literalist, some people call it scripturalist, some people call it straightforward, um, a different textual approach. Um, and one that tends to take the text much more at face value, um, that de-emphasizes the process of interpretation. Um, and as well as a view that, you know, Islam should be central to the state and to um, political life in the country. And this movement had been very underground in the 1980s and 1990s. Um, and then after 1998, the veterans of that movement, which had been, become very entrenched on college campuses and, and still certainly is, um, came together to form the Prosperous Justice Party. Initially, they had a, a much stronger Islamist platform and advocated for Indonesia becoming an Islamic state. Um, that platform did not serve them very well electorally, um, and they moderated. Um, and so they no longer call for an Islamic state, but they do call for Islamic values to be infused into the state. Um, and they're somewhat vague about what that means exactly. Um, so the people that, that I met in the Prosperous Justice Party um, were, many of them were, were roughly the same age. All of the activists that I was interviewing were really essentially in their, from their late 20s to their late 40s. Um, so the same generation, also urban, um, middle class, college graduates for the most part, um, but didn't tend to come out of these circles um, of either the progressive left or um, the Nadlatul Ulama uh, milieu. Um, and so they were sort of coming out of, and this I think was very interesting, um, they tended to have been educated in the secular state institutions. Um, and many of them, I found, did not come from particularly religious families. Some did, but, but many did not. Um, many actually came from somewhat more secular backgrounds um, and were very strongly influenced by the Terbia movement. Um, so today, the Prosperous Justice Party, I think you could consider them um, sort of moderate conservatives. Um, you know, certainly they're very committed to electoral democracy. They don't support violence. Um, when it comes to gender, um, they have a lot of women in the party. And um, they say that women, you know, 
can, should certainly be involved in politics, um, that women can have careers and, and, you know, do things in public life, but that the domestic sphere should really be their priority. Um, that I think actually does correspond with, with the views of a lot of Indonesians. So they're not that far off the mainstream in those views. Um, but they do some things um, that are in line with, with their understanding of Islam that do depart from the norm. So, for instance, um, they tend to kind of emphasize particular forms of gender segregation um, within the party. You know, men and women are not supposed to shake hands or, or have any physical contact with each other. Um, and, and they tend to be very careful about things like that. Um, they tend to wear... The women tend to wear a style of veil um, that is sort of more covering than what most Indonesian women wear. Um, so they set themselves apart, I think, from the mainstream in, in some of those senses. Um, and they have, in recent years, advocated for a lot of what you could sort of call uh, in, in our American context, kind of family values sorts of legislation. Um, so uh, perhaps their their signature piece of legislation in recent years has been um, a law against pornography. They had laws against pornography, but this is a, a much stronger law criminalizing pornography that was um, certainly very strongly pushed by the Prosperous Justice Party. Yeah, could you actually tell us a little bit about more about that? Because it uh, it sounded like a really interesting case, and it's it sounds like it was stemming from something that in the West we might not really relate with pornography. It sounded like a debate around a pop star. Yeah, so um, you know, certainly one of the things that that happened after 1998, along with kind of the opening up of, of political activism, is you ha really had an opening up of the media sphere and censorship was lifted. Um, and so you had an explosion of television channels and new radio stations and new magazines um, and uh, kind of an intensification of, of celebrity culture and, and the pop music world. Um, and, you know, that, as you might expect, went in all different directions. Um, so Part of what some people began to react to, and, and I saw that, I remember seeing this myself, you would go out to markets and there would be people, you know, vendors selling all these very hardcore pornography DVDs right there on, on the street. Um, so there was kind of an accessibility of some of this material that was very new for Indonesia and that, that people certainly hadn't experienced before. And then you had, I think, a real intensification of this kind of consumer media culture with these new TV channels featuring, you know, all sorts of programming that, that, you know, had never been allowed before under the previous regime. Um, let's put it this way. When I lived in Indonesia as a high school exchange student in 1990, there were three TV channels. <laughs> and, you know, what they showed was incredibly staid programming. I remember watching a lot of reruns of Full House. <laughs> <laughs> that was the kind of stuff that was on TV. Um so, you know, there was a huge shift. Suddenly you were having these, you know, shows featuring all these kind of scantily clad women dancing to 
pop music. And one of the entertainers who became very popular in the early 2000s um, was uh, a young woman in a style of music that's a, a really fun style of music in Indonesia that sort of combines Arabic and Indonesian influences called Dangdu. And um, she became very popular mostly because of her her sexy dance style. I don't think she was actually that talented a singer. Um, but essentially, she looked like she was working a stripper pole when she was dancing, and she wore these sort of catsuit-type outfits. So she didn't leave much to the imagination. And she, and she became extraordinarily popular and incited a huge controversy. Um and a number of, of other celebrities um, condemned her for, for her, you know, her sexy dancing style, and um, which featured a, a hip shake, which I, for me brought back interesting sort of resonances of how, you know, performers in this country, the early rock performers like Elvis Presley were, were so controversial for the same reason, actually, uh, with the hip shake. Um, so that became a huge controversy actually during my fieldwork in, in 2003. Um, and there were demonstrations against her and for her. Um, and she was sort of chastised by a fellow performer. And people in the Prosperous Justice Party and some of these other more conservative political parties and, and Muslim organizations um, began to really try to focus on some new legislation to criminalize pornography and to sort of bring some order to this, um, this burgeoning uh, media sector. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so the pornography law was the was the eventual result of that. She also, this performer, her name is Inul Doratista, um, she ended up toning down her performances considerably. And I believe at this point she might be sort of semi-retired. But um, of course, not surprisingly, you know, newer performers kind of took her place. Um, and, and I don't think they were all that successful in, in really cracking down on on those kinds of performances, although there probably there isn't anyone who has the mass popularity um, that, that she did for a while. Um, but certainly if you turn on Indonesian television, um, you know, it can be surprising what's what's allowed to air. Um, you know, that you, despite the pornography law, there hasn't been as much censorship as, as you might expect. Yeah, really interesting. Um, the 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 last chapter you focus on another group which I I won't even try to pronounce because I'll butcher it, um, but this uh, takes kind of a third perspective in these fields that you've been talking about between Islamic politics and gender politics. Can you can you walk us through uh, who's in these groups, what this organization's all about? Sure. So the the last group that I studied is um, a feminist NGO called Solidaritas Prabhuan, or which means Women's Solidarity. Um, this organization really came out of a period in the early 1990s when left-wing activism was just beginning to reemerge after you know being suppressed for decades essentially. Um, and you started seeing some of these new younger activists uh, coming up in the early 1990s and, and really I, in many ways doing some, some risky things that, that brought down, um, you know, certainly in the early years, they, they 
kind of felt the wrath of the government. Um, and, um, you know, some of them were more underground and then some of them were more above ground, like Solidaritas Perempt 1. They were formed um, to advocate for the rights of women who go overseas to work as domestics. Um, I, certainly a, a huge phenomenon in Indonesia. Many women from rural areas do this. Um, and they encounter a great deal of exploitation overseas, um, whether it's in Malaysia or Hong Kong or, or in the Middle East. Um, and there was a sense among the activists in this group that the government wasn't doing things um, that they should to advocate for the, to, you know, help these women um, in it, prevent them from being exploited. Um, but there was also these activists had a very strong critique of the authoritarian government, um, which they kind of, kind of combined with a sort of leftist critique of, of global capitalism. And they saw, you know, really what was at issue in the exploitation of these uh, female migrant workers is, is the global capitalist system more than anything else. Um, so that was kind of the perspective that this organization formed out of, um, and by the time I got there, a, a decade later, they really saw themselves as very much part of the feminist movement in Indonesia um, and really part of kind of a global feminist movement. And, and that was very important to them. Um, but I think more so than some feminists, they really maintain this sort of strong critique of, of global capitalism and, and neoliberalism. Um, now, what was interesting to me about this group is that, you know, while you could call them secular in the sense that, you know, they're not making arguments about religion, religion really isn't a core part of, of what they're doing. Um, what I found is that among personally, many of the women who were on the staff of this organization were, you know, practicing Muslims. Some of them were, were not practicing, but, but many of them were. Um, and there was actually some overlap in the membership and in the, there were people who were on the staff of this NGO who had also been part of Fatayat or had been part of Rahima, um, or, you know, they were very, certainly friendly with those organizations. And so that was something I think that surprised me as I was expecting to find more of a, a strong boundary between the religious women's organizations and the secular women's organizations. And instead, I was finding that there was actually a fair amount of overlap. Um, so that was very interesting to me because um, certainly I think feminism is often tagged as something that's, you know, secular liberal ideology. Um, and I do think in, in many parts of the world that there has been antagonism between feminists and um, religious activists, whether Muslims or, or Christians. And yet here in this organization, I, I was not finding that. Um, and instead, I, I found kind of an openness um, that was very interesting to me. Um, now, as for who joined this group, Again, um, it was people who largely had been involved in some type of activism during their student years, particularly when I first went there and was uh, at their office a lot in 2003. Uh, many of the people in the leadership were really kind of veterans of the democracy movement. That's not so much the case anymore. There's a younger generation now um, who's mostly on, on staff, but, but certainly the founders and, and the people who were 
on staff in the early 2000s were people that came out of those kinds of experiences of, you know, demonstrating against the, the authoritarian regime um, and, you know, really seeing themselves as part of a broader social movement. Um, and I think, you know, more than any of these groups, uh, than any of the other groups, you can really see Solidaritas Prump One as sort of a classic, um, you know, organization that kind of came out of, of sort of grassroots activism. And they, they are an NGO, but very much an activist NGO and, you know, very likely to be participating still in demonstrations and, and rallies and so on, even while they do other sort of more NGO types of work as well. Now, there's really so much to learn from this book, and we're, we're only scratching the surface. Um, is there anything you want to let listeners know about the book that we weren't able to discuss yet? Sure. Well, I think, um, you know, for me, I think a, a lot of, of one of the biggest issues, of course, and, and you can tell this from the title is, you know, what is the relationship between Islam and feminism? And I think what I was finding is that it's not necessarily an antagonistic relationship and that there are interesting ways in which um, these ideas are, are combined and sometimes synthesized by people on the ground, um, that there's a constant interaction between Islam and, and feminism. And it's, certainly there are times when it's an antagonistic interaction, but there are also times when it's sort of uh, one of kind of mutual interaction and, and shaping each other. And, and I think we see this particularly in the progressive Muslim women's organizations like uh, Fatayat and also in, in Rahima, um, a way that, you know, Islam has been somewhat feminized in a way, and, and feminism has been a little bit Islamized, I think, as well. Um, and I suggest that, you know, Indonesia might not be the only place where this is happening, um, and that perhaps the antagonism between Islam and feminism has been um, overplayed, um, and that Part of the issue at times is that the word feminism is, is somewhat of a, has a lot of baggage that comes with it, and, and people don't necessarily call themselves feminists for a variety of reasons. Um, but that when you really drill down and, and look at, you know, what is it that these groups are for? What are their ideologies? Um, that many of them are not necessarily hostile. Um, to feminist ideas. And in fact, some are, are actively promoting them, whether you call it that or not. Um, so certainly that's, I think, one of the big takeaways from the book. Um, another one is, is the overlap, as I mentioned, between uh, religious and secular women's organizations, um, that there's also there um, not the strong boundary um, that one might expect to find, um, but certainly among liberals and progressives that in some ways there aren't a lot of strong distinctions between, you know, who's more religious, who's less religious, who's more, you know, devout or, or less devout. Um, that there's kind of a milieu of, of liberals and progressives of, um, you know, who, who take a variety of different positions on, on, on religion. Um, and yet, um, because they have similar political views um, that they're able to work together. Um, and so that the real dividing line, I think, is it, not so much a religious secular dividing line, but a liberal 
or and liberal versus conservative dividing line. Well, thank you, Rachel. Before I let you go, could you tell us a little bit about what, what kind of things you're working on now or what things we might expect from you in the future? Sure. Well, I have um, two things I'm working on. Right now, um, I've been working with two fellow sociologists to co-edit a special issue of the journal Gender and Society, which is one of the leading journals for gender studies. Um, and this special issue is going to be about religion and gender in global perspective. Um, and we've received a huge number of submissions for it, a uh, hundred submissions for this special issue, and we've wow. whittled them down. Um, and it's going to have um, just five or six articles, um, and we've picked some some really exciting, interesting articles, and uh, that will be out in February 2015. Um, and we are working on a, a conceptual introduction, which I think will hopefully lay out a, a new agenda um, for the study of gender and religion. And it's meant to encourage um, those who study gender to think more about religion and their role, how religion intersects and interacts with gender. And then to also encourage those who study religion to really take up the question of gender, not simply as, as sort of a variable that you might add into studies, but again, as, as something that, that intersects in interesting ways with religion. Great. So that's, um, that's one big project that, that has been occupying my, my time more recently. And then when it comes to my own research, I am planning um, a new project, which I hope will become my second book eventually, um, which will be about the global Islamic uh, fashion industry. Um, and certainly my time in Indonesia sparked this interest. Islamic fashion has become actually quite an important part of the Indonesian economy. Um, it's become quite high end. You see uh, Muslim fashion shows in five star hotels. Um, and there's a whole kind of wave of, of new designers of Muslim fashion. And, and I think Indonesia is actually producing some of the most kind of creative and interesting Muslim fashion. Um, but I'm going to study sort of the, the industry at a kind of more global level. Um, and so it'll be different than there, of course, been so many studies of veiling and, and women wearing Muslim clothing. And that's not so much the focus here. Here, it's much more of the sense of the industry itself and um, the kind of paradoxes that are involved in this industry in which, you know, I think you have a tension between um, piety and, and religious devotion and the intense consumerism that's involved in, in such an industry. Um, I want to look at things like what are the ideals of beauty um, and how is this industry being fueled by the, the rise around the world of a, of a Muslim middle class. Mm, sounds fascinating. <laughs> well, you'll have to come back and uh, talk to us about that book when it comes out. I hope so. <laughs> um, well, thank you, Rachel. It, it really was a pleasure speaking with you, and it was a pleasure reading your book, and I hope others will, uh, will join me in doing that. So thanks again. Thanks very much. That was my conversation with Rachel Ronaldo about Mobilizing Piety, Islam, and Feminism in Indonesia, published with Oxford University Press in 2013. Thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies.